Right. Well, they do say never meet your heroes. I think I'd add to that never spend hours eavesdropping on their private conversations and made-up jokey songs. This one's going to be a tough listen, and whilst I can seek to explain a lot of what goes on in this episode, I don't think I can justify any of it. So buckle up as we spend time with the Beatles at their most inappropriate and pay particular attention to the disclaimer that starts this and every episode. The Beatles were very much of their time. I will present as much context for their statements as I can, but there will be language and views expressed that may not fit with modern sensitivities. But this is 1969. Until they invent the time machine, these words remain unchangeable. Good morning. Twenty-nine. Twenty-nine. Three, two, one. Don't operate these conditions, boy. You know we're coming out. It's like it's like that. We're like we're striking. That's what it is. It's like a strike. And that's what we're going through now, really. Is that we've got to readjust to each other. You know, I've gone up with so many songs, but I've got like my quantum of tunes for the next ten years or album. I won't lie, I'm not too good. <laughs> the winter of discontent with the Beatles. Hello, and welcome to Winter of Discontent the podcast that takes a deep dive into the recordings of the Beatles sessions for the Get Back Project. My name is Nick. Join me now as we embark on this epic journey together. Episode 51 Welcome back once again to January 9th, 1969. The finish line is in sight, but we're not on the home straight yet. In a moment, we'll join the Beatles as they scrupulously avoid rehearsing George's For You Blue. As I record this episode, the big news is, of course, the release of the, in inverted commas, last Beatles single, Now and Then. I know many, if not all, Beatles podcasts have covered this release in the most misty-eyed and extremely glowing terms. I'd love to say I'm one of them, It is, after all, a gift from Paul and Ringo to us. And despite its melancholy tone, it's completely free. And it does seem to be a curious earworm that's hard to shake off. My misgivings about the song are really in the context of the audio you're about to hear. While attempting to gain some buy-in from his bandmates for his new country blues, George is ignored at best and openly mocked at worst. So, hearing a song released under the Beatles' name, which was unequivocally against George's wishes, seems like more of the same. That's why my podcast recommendation in this episode is, screw it, we're just going to talk about the Beatles. They discuss now and then. The panel express opinions from both sides of the divide, but are always respectful. As such, I think it's the most balanced coverage of the release I've heard so far. Plus, they really are damn funny. No new names to add to the list of supporters on buymeacoffee.com forward slash wadpod this time, but there is one interesting review on iTunes. Solidair1 writes, Always room for a decent Beatles podcast, and this is great to dip in and out of now and then. 
I see what you did there. As news is announced that Nothing Is Real has hit 3 million downloads, our little niche production has just passed the 140,000 mark. Each episode is getting slightly less listeners each time. I really do appreciate every listener, but the format of the podcast is its own worst enemy. Being a serial, most listeners feel obliged to start at the beginning. And now, with over 50 hours of content to wade through, it's easy to get get back fatigue. I can only urge you to stick with it as things are about to get dramatic. So, the story so far. Back from lunch and a little merrier from the alcohol, the Beatles return to the soundstage. George wants to rehearse that song. That song turns out to be Get Back. Paul starts it on the bass and sings the few words he has so far. John joins him on extremely loud guitar, followed by George and Ringo. Without a fixed idea for once, Paul allows the band to develop an arrangement together. The performance turns into a jam, probably the best loose jam so far in these sessions. George queries the words. He and Paul discuss the idea that the words don't have to mean anything. The next run-through, Paul follows up the get-back theme with two verses about immigrants, one Puerto Rican and one Pakistani. At the end of this performance, John and Paul attempt to be satirical about racism, but 50-plus years on, it comes across quite badly. More of this later. The jam picks up again. They're all enjoying the experience, and Paul really stretches his vocal cords. Glyn asks about another song, which turns out to be Let It Be. George and Paul practice the descending phrase from this for a few minutes. George asks if it's better for the show if they film individual set pieces rather than one continuous performance. John thinks they could do both. He envisions filming several shows and cutting them together. He also presciently suggests they get a piano player for the show. A brief bit of noodling by the four musicians gradually turns into a jam. Paul complains of a headache. He's been complaining about how loud George's amp is. George unhelpfully suggests an aspirin. During a lull, Paul relates the story of his trip to Portugal. It's been written about in William Hickey's Daily Express column. Paul reportedly gave a song, Panina, away to a house band at a hotel bar. That is until his legal team found out. The band play a rough version of Panina. After some urging from Paul, John dusts off across the universe to rehearse. What follows is brief snippets of the rehearsal for Across the Universe. It's not clear how much time has passed, but John begins to sound bored and goofs around a lot. There is a sped up version of Across the Universe and a bossa nova version of Teddy Boy from Paul. Another run through features a beautiful high harmony from George. John begins to dictate the arrangement now, much more engaged. Paul asks for one more run through, but a little faster, and this is an improvement, though John now adopts a mock Scottish accent. As this concludes, John improvises Shaking in the 60s, a brief song about a cocktail book bought by Dick James. And that, Wad fans, is where we'll rejoin them. John leaves the Beatles in a pretty faithful cover of Cliff Richard's Move It. 
in the background you can hear George talking to Paul about do you get tired after lunch? His solution? Cut out the wine then. This might explain some of the more playful performances this afternoon. Recorded in 1958, Move It was the debut single of British teen idol Cliff Richard. Written by guitarist Ian Samwell, it's widely credited as one of the first authentic rock and roll singles made outside of the United States. Recorded in EMI's Studio 2, which would later become the Beatles' own Home From Home, and produced by Norrie Paramore, the track was originally intended to be the B-side of a cover of Schoolboy Crush. It was cut in the last 40 minutes of the session and engineered by junior engineer Malcolm Addy, recruited on the spot for the task to cover for Peter Bowne, who had tickets for the opera. At the time, Cliff Richard was still a regular on Jack Good's Oh Boy television show. It was Good that insisted that Richard perform Move It and not Teenage Crush, and that decision caused EMI's Columbia label to switch Move It to the A-side of his first single. As a result, in the autumn of 1958, Move It reached its peak of number two in the British singles charts. John Siegs from Move It to Good Rockin' Tonight. Roy Brown, born in Kinda, Louisiana, was an American rhythm and blues singer who got his start, like many others, singing gospel music in church. Despite a brief career as a welterweight boxer, a talent competition win in 1945 set him on a new path in music. He found work as a singer in Joe Coleman's group with a regular slot at a nightclub called Club Granada in Galveston, Texas. It was during this time that he developed the song Good Rockin' Tonight. Unable to get any interest in the song from established blues singers, he was encouraged to sing it over the phone to the president of Deluxe Records, Jules Brown. Roy Brown was signed up to a recording contract on the basis of that telephone audition and recorded his version of Good Rockin' Tonight in 1948. It reached number 13 in the Billboard R&B chart. A cover of the song by Wynoni Harris did even better, scoring an R&B number one later that year. Elvis Presley covered the song for some records in 1954, and it's probably this version that the Beatles are most familiar with. Lucy Atwell Smith by Henry Gibson. Lucy Atwell Smith by Henry Gibson. Paul now referencing Rowan and Martin's laughing, as Ringo had done previously. John and Paul exchange laughing references. I was a teenage drug addict until they took all my drugs away. Thank you. He had a false poochie. Poochie, poochie face. man who the nose didn't be in the nose without the nose, and now here's Dickie. Can I, Dick? <laughs> Can I tell you about uh, my ma who's locked in a suitcase for three I weeks? don't. I think you like the noise. Roll 99, slate 186, continued, camera A. 
Dickie Outwell. Henry Gibson, born James Bateman, was a regular cast member for Rona Martin's Laughing. His on-stage persona of the poet from Fairhope, Alabama, was given the stage name Henry Gibson as a play on Henrik Ibsen, the Norwegian dramatist, whose Doll's House was the inspiration for the original title of the Beatles' double album. The character made a number of guest appearances on Tonight, starring Jack Parr, between 1957 and 1962. A chance meeting on the show with Jerry Lewis led to Gibson being cast in The Nutty Professor. Further appearances followed in The Beverly Hillbillies and My Favourite Martian before a three-year stint on Laughing, where he was nominated for a Golden Globe. The poems delivered in an effete southern drawl were often sharp, political and satirical. His acting career continued into the 70s and 80s, appearing in Robert Altman's Nashville, The Long Goodbye, A Perfect Couple and Health, as well as John Landis's The Blues Brothers, plus the Tom Hanks vehicle The Burbs and Gremlins 2, The New Batch, among others. He died September 14th, 2009. John Mayne's good. Very interesting. <laughs> but they screwed no. it up. John Mayne's son. It's still alive. It's great. John mentions John Wayne. This reminds George of a story about Wayne's son. John jokes, I'm Robert Mitchum's son, about someone they've met. Chris Mitchum, says George, who kept appearing at the bar in their house. Paul sings Chris Mitchellmore, a hybrid of Chris Mitchum and the BBC's Cliff Mitchellmore. And then we saw... John leads them into a cover of Tennessee by Carl Perkins with George dusting off his rockabilly chops. Tennessee was written and recorded by Carl Perkins in 1955. Perkins himself was from Tiptonville, Tennessee, so the lyrics of this song are a homage to the musical influence of his home state. Perkins has the honour of being the artist most covered by the Beatles. John pulling Crips, mocking his own song, singing across the universe and saying, I don't want to do this anymore. 
Interestingly, with the Pulling Crips act, he's still doing it four years after stopping it on stage. I thought he might have grown out of it. In answer to John's own comment, have we done any new ones lately? He suggests I Me Mine. Though Ringo's beat immediately reminds him of the House of the Rising Sun. The house is in Walton Town, the district where John grew up. The House of the Rising Sun is a traditional folk song first collected in Appalachia in the 1930s. Like many rural folk songs, its roots are probably in traditional English folk songs, notably the 16th century ballad of the unfortunate rake or the 17th century folk song Lord Barnard and Little Musgrave, though the jury is still out on both of these. The oldest published version of the lyrics date back to 1925, the oldest known recording is from 1933. Woody Guthrie recorded a version in 1941 and Ed Berry recorded his in 1944. Pete Seeger recorded a version in 1958. Joan Baez recorded it in 1960, followed by Bob Dylan in 1961, whose version was taught to him by Dave Van Ronk. It's this recording that was the inspiration for the chords to George's While My Guitar Gently Weeps. Eric Burden of The Animals relates that he first heard the song in a club in Newcastle sung by folk singer Johnny Handel. The Animals began including a version in their set while on tour with Chuck Berry. It went down so well that producer Mickey Most realised he had a hit on his hands and quickly recorded the song with the band in one take, including Chaz Chandler's fluffed bass line at the end of the organ solo. And it's this version that the Beatles are parodying here. Okay, straight into Bodicea. Straight into Bodicea, jokes John. Then more seriously, come on, I've done all mine. Then a bit more reflectively, he says, both of mine. George asks Glyn if they can amplify acoustic guitar yet. Glyn laughs and replies, no, uh, not really. This despite George wanting to use an acoustic guitar since the first rehearsals of All Things Must Pass. Do we have it, the facilities for acoustic guitar yet? Uh, you know, because it's like that. George comments that this is like Paul suggesting they arrange themselves like they were on stage. He means they should have sorted out these technical challenges by now. Glyn tries to explain 
that there are feedback issues with the PA setup as it is. George tries to explain to Glyn about his folk blues. So he wants to start rehearsing for you blue. However, his conversation is drowned out by John and Paul. Inspired by the front page of Glyn's Daily Mirror, which he's holding, breaking into this controversial improvisation. To the immigrants, you better get back to your Commonwealth homes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, You better get back home. Now he knocked Powell and said to the folks, Footage of this in Get Back shows Yoko chair dancing to the rhythm. Commonwealth, yes. Commonwealth. It's really not been a great day if you're not a fan of edgy subject matter. I don't know what Paul was drinking or smoking over lunch, or whether he was over exuberant because John was back in the room, but he really can't stop singing songs about immigration today. Commonwealth does at least have some context. In Peter Jackson's Get Back documentary, we see Glyn Johns walk past Paul with a copy of The Daily Mirror for January the 9th, 1969. Paul immediately starts to improvise a lyric based on the front page headline. The article reads as follows. Warning to the premiers. No extra immigrants. Curbs won't be eased, says Callaghan, by William Wolfe. Britain has no intention of easing her immigration restrictions to take in extra Asians forced out of East Africa. Home Secretary James Callaghan is making this clear in private talks with Commonwealth leaders now meeting in London. Mr Callaghan insists that if Britain is forced to take more Asians from Kenya and Uganda, there will be a cut down on other Commonwealth immigrants. The Home Secretary is giving the Premiers the strongest warning yet of serious trouble in Britain if extra migrants have to be accepted. He is telling them that many Britons share the views of Tory MP Mr Enoch Powell, who wants to stop further immigration and encourage migrants to go home. But Mr Callaghan is coupling his warnings with appeals to the Premiers to help by easing the pressure on Asians. The new tension over immigration has been sparked off by the policy of Kenyan and Ugandan leaders of forcing Asians with British passports to hand over their businesses to their own citizens. More than 50,000 Asians may be involved. Mr Callaghan gave his warning first to Indian Premier Mrs Indira Gandhi, who replied that the problem was Britain's responsibility. The same warning will be repeated to leaders of Pakistan, Kenya and Uganda. 
Now, we know that Paul had read some parts of the Daily Mirror this morning, as have George and John, because all three have discussed George Gale's column. It's not much of a stretch to conclude that Paul had also read the article on the front page. Commonwealth, the song, is clearly based on James Callaghan's threat to cut Commonwealth immigration if Britain is forced to take in Asian migrants from Uganda and Kenya. Much like Get Back, Commonwealth is a sympathetic commentary on the plight of migrants rather than any kind of condemnation. Satirical humour, unfortunately, hasn't aged well, which leads us neatly onto the next unfortunate improvised lyric, Enoch Powell, who was also mentioned in the article, and that's the only reason he appears. But worse is yet to come. Via a brief improvised O Enoch Powell, we get another jam which develops yet another controversial lyric. This time, White Power. Oh, Enoch Powell. Based on a riff that sounds a lot like Roadhouse Blues by The Doors, but a year earlier, White Power is a comic inversion of Black Power, the more radical branch of the American Civil Rights Movement, influenced by the speeches and writings of Malcolm X. we get two references to Malcolm Ev, clearly short for their road manager Malcolm Evans, if the joke needed any more explaining. It is all the same, shaky ground for Paul to be venturing onto, even in 1969. White Power revolves into Get Off, another improvisation, name-checking a cast of characters, much like John will do later in the month with his gem, Dig It. George procrastinates again, stating, I'll do one, but it's on acoustic guitar and with no backing. John starts Get Off again, and another list of names follows. Get Off!
Santana. Get off is reminiscent of the intro and the outro by the Bonzos. How about it? Tape cuts. Roll 100B. The time is quarter to four. Slate 188, take one. Paul complains about George's volume again. The noise is a little too loud for me. John jokes, leave the group then. In Sulpy's book, he speculates that this is a passive-aggressive swipe at George, who may have indicated his intention to leave earlier than we think. Or it could just be a coincidence. Leave the group then, if you don't like it. <laughs> Paul starts up Get Off once again, adding to the list of names. George tries to squeeze in the line from For You Blue to get the band back on track. Bradford! It doesn't work. Tape cuts again. This song just won't die. This is roll night up. Uh, roll one hundred one eight nine. Camera A. San Francisco prom. Can you dig it? The song that just won't quit, Get Off, is clearly an embryonic version of what will become Dig It later on in the sessions. In Doug Sorby's book, Drugs, Divorce and a Slipping Image, he goes to the trouble of listing the names that Paul and John call out during this performance. I'm going to read directly from the book. Malcolm Ev. Needless to say, this refers to Mal Evans, the Beatles' roadie. It's undoubtedly a play on the name of black activist Malcolm X. James Brown, American soul singer. The Beatles spoke about him the day before and will briefly cover Papa's Got a Brand New Bag during these sessions. Cassius Cleavage. Paul combines Cassius Clay, i.e. boxer Muhammad Ali, with a play on Eldridge Cleaver, another black activist. And it's also a part of the female anatomy. Deirdre McSharry. Called by John, Deirdre McSharry was a magazine editor. Humphrey Lestook, an early TV personality from the UK, Lestook presented a children's programme called Whirly Gig, which features a string puppet called Mr Turnip. Judy Garland, US actress who starred in many musicals, including The Wizard of Oz. Jeremy Banks, Apple's photographic coordinator. Wilson Pickett, another black US soul singer. Jimmy Brown, most likely James Brown again, although it's possibly a reference to the popular number The Jimmy Brown Song, or the Lonnie Donegan track Jimmy Brown the Newsboy, or the American football player. Malcolm Evans, Mal is honoured twice. Following this, Paul calls out the name of their hometown, Liverpool. Billy Turner, an early member of the Quarrymen, John and Paul's first group. Eric Griffiths, another Quarrymen member. Ivan Vaughan, another Quarrymen member and longtime friend of John's. Dusty Springfield, a popular British singer. Russ Conway, a popular British pianist from the 50s and 60s. Conway had several number one hits in the UK charts. Peter Brown, Apple employee and ex-assistant of Brian Epstein. Joan Littlewood, 
innovative British theatre director who's most famous for Oh What a Lovely War, 1963. John Lennon, inspired by Joan Littlewood, but at a complete loss to keep up with Paul's string of personages, John calls out his own name, Mary Whitehouse. Paul mentions the name of this British anti-pornography crusader, Richard Nixon. After mentioning the US Democrat Party, we have Republican Richard Nixon, at the time President-elect of the United States. Ronnie Corbett, an English television comedian who hosted the contemporary programme The Corbett Follies. David Frost, an English television talk show host. Betty Grable, US actress most famous for her World War II pin-up. Clark Kent, continuing the thread of mid-century Americana, the mild-mannered Mr. Kent is, of course, Superman's alter ego. This call very much amuses John, who repeats this name, and he and Paul laugh. Super Ajax, suggested by Superman, no doubt. This is the name of a popular cleaning product. Sean O'Mahony, John calls out the name of the publisher of the Beatles Monthly, mispronounced by me in a previous episode, a British publication for Beatles fans, which was published throughout the 1960s. Jack McGowan, a British actor, he appeared in Wonderwall, for which George did the score, and How I Won the War, which co-starred John. Enid Blyton, well-known children's author whose books would have been read by the Beatles as children. Mike Isaacson, college acquaintance of John. Jeff Mohammed, another crony from John's college years. Tony Carricker, another college pal, John calls this one, as well as the next. Bill Harry, another college friend. Harry went on to found Merseybeat, a pop music newspaper from the early 1960s. Emperor Roscoe, popular disc jockey for Radio Luxembourg. June Harry, John's still going through his college class list. June was another friend. Virginia Harry, Paul chimes in, another Harry, in this case Bill's wife. John is greatly amused. Norman Rossington, British character actor who played Norm in A Hard Day's Night. John Junkin, British character actor who played Shake in A Hard Day's Night. Tony Sheridan, British singer who the Beatles played with in Hamburg. Sheridan has a place in Beatles history as the vocalist on the Beatles' earliest recordings. Winston Churchill, British Prime Minister during World War II. Lester Ackley, controversial Merseyside promoter. Gerald Nabarro, equally controversial British Member of Parliament. Nabarro was famous for his handlebar moustache and collection of cars with personalised number plates. John creates another distraction, starting Honey Hush. The rest of the band join in. Finally, George gets a chance to start for you, Blue. Being a 12-bar blues, it's easy for the rest of the band to pick up. At this point, the arrangement is a lot different from the released version.
It's difficult to hear here, but Paul is saying he can't hear George's vocal. And then Kevin passes something to George and George thanks him. verses George ends the song John comments on its brevity George still wants to do it on acoustic To accompany him, George mentions getting an acoustic bass. On this occasion, he doesn't mean a double bass, but rather a large acoustic guitar-shaped bass guitar. Glenn can be heard just about still talking about the practicalities of amplifying acoustic guitar. Out of impatience or boredom, John and Paul busk through the chords to Marvin Gaye's Hitchhike. Typically, George has changed guitars again, switching to his Gibson J200. George is complaining about the limited number of mics. As he's finally mic'd up, Paul teases John about the number of mics he's using. Well, he did need one for the piano and his vocal. John, you mustn't just use them because they're there, you know. Oh, must pick and choose, John. Must discriminate. You must discriminate. <laughs> George runs through for you, Blue solo. Whoop. 
Jealous eyes Taking one John sing a different melody over George's guitar playing. fifth song that George submitted for the band for the live show, For You Blue, is George's attempt to get buy-in from his bandmates by presenting a simpler tune in an idiom that they could all play instinctively. By this point, one week into the sessions, George had either had his songs ignored like Hear Me Lord, or mocked like I Me Mine, or complained about as we'd let it down and it's too many chords, or when it was rehearsed extensively, like all things must pass, the lack of enthusiasm from his bandmates, notably John, was impossible to ignore. Two run-throughs of For You Blue was enough for George to decide he'd rather perform the song solo. This was as much to do with the goofing and clowning of John and Paul during these rehearsals as any technical performance issues. George, of course, doesn't help matters with his constant procrastinations and obsessing over his guitar sound. It should be said that both Glyn and Peter have failed to get a decent solution to the technical issues associated with miking up an acoustic guitar. Had this been solved, George might have been more satisfied with the band performances. Musically, For You Blue is a simple enough quick change blues progression in D, owing more to traditional country blues than the harder-edged rhythm and blues of Chicago artists like Elmore James. The straightforward chords D7, G7 and A7 are played on a guitar with a capo at the 5th fret. So George is actually fretting an open A7, sometimes with an octave above, D7th with an F-sharp bass note and E7th. One little embellishment while playing the A7th shape is when, George, is when George hammers on two notes in exactly the same way that John does on the intro to I've Got a Feeling and John will also do later in Dig a Pony. Lyrically, the songs George has submitted for consideration during these sessions tell their own story. In particular, they consciously or unconsciously betray George's state of mind during a week in which his wife Patty had left him and he'd tried to start a relationship with Charlotte Martin. From the overt lust of let it down, let your hair hang all around me, to the almost flippant line in all things must pass, seems my lover's up and gone and left me with no warning, to the more reflective hear me lord, Help me, Lord, please, to burn out this desire. I Me Mine marks George's exploration of his own self-absorption, and For You Blue would appear to be George's own realisation of his own true feelings towards his wife. The timings 
would seem to add up. It's believed that George at least began to try to patch up his relationship with Patty around this time. Perhaps having a catchy tune to serenade her with came in handy. George suggests singing other people's songs on the show. John dismisses this idea. Should we do some other people's tunes as well? I don't know any. Try that now, George, says Glyn. Paul replies to George in the negative. Try that now, George. I don't like it. Hello. Hello. I can only just bear doing your lot song. <laughs> yeah, but the song strangers. Much better than ours. John is only half joking when he says he can only just bear doing Paul and George's songs. George thinks there are other people's songs much better than the Beatles' offerings. John again brushes this off. George starts For You Blue. Paul continues to talk over George's performance. Later joined by John. That's why I don't learn them. George stops singing since he's not getting much buy-in. Michael asks if anyone is too hot. George says he is. This might not just be the heaters. Them in from by the gate and they turned them on. There was about eight. They made the place a whole lot cooler though. This is Paul invoking Henry Gibson again and he's making some kind of pun about turning fans on who were standing by the gate. Just a whole lot cooler. Yeah, the fans got cool. You lost. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, thanks, uh, Bevin. This isn't Daddy's tea, is it? No. Daddy doesn't like this chemical tea, you know. Johnny's given a cup of studio tea by Kevin, who he calls Bevin, and immediately complains about it. Uh, whenever I want one, I'll be the one I want. Sarcastically, John says he'd like to do a number just on electric, 
and then makes a cacophonous noise, drowning out George. George indulges him, though he must be unhappy with the lack of interest in his song. I like to do it on just on electric. <laughs> George starts rambling woman, accompanied tunelessly by John. turns his guitar down and strums out a parody version of Paul's All Together Now from the soon-to-be-released Yellow Submarine soundtrack. Tape cuts. George starts rambling woman. Paul interrupts, asking him to play them his tune, which, of course, he's been trying to do. Paul suggests instrumentation. A second acoustic play by John is a sensible suggestion. Ring on, breathalyzer. <laughs> this is roll 101, slate 190, camera A. John chugs away on his electric. George starts rambling woman again. The feed switches to George's mic, though John's obtrusive guitar can still be heard and the occasional vocalisation. Eventually, the Beatles fall silent. The song ends with a giggle.
Maybe as a demonstration of someone else's song they could do. George then sings Bob Dylan's I Threw It All Away, an unreleased song he must have learned during his stay in Woodstock. He then seeks into another Dylan cover, Mama, You've Been On My Mind. All these performances are excellent. Paul has moved to piano to start Let It Be. So with George's song abandoned for now, let's leave them until next time. And that's it. If you want to support the show, you can leave a tip at buymeacoffee.com forward slash wadpod. That's W-O-D-P-O-D. You can also interact with me on the socials, Facebook and Instagram and Twitter, plus my Gmail, all titled Winter of Discontent Pod. Please like and subscribe and leave a review. It really helps other people find us. Thanks for listening and bye for now. Bye for now.